Um, many of you know I'm an old history teacher, and for my money, some of the some of the saddest pictures I would ever come across were pictures like these. If you don't recognize what that is, those are pictures taken from either in the 1930s or 1940s in Germany, and these are Christian, giant air quotes, but Christian church leaders taking public, on the top, taking a public oath of support to Adolf Hitler and his Nazi regime. It's from our perspective, looking backward, it's crazy to think it doesn't seem possible that, that men who had pledged to, to be loyal to Christ above all things could stand and publicly take an oath of loyalty to, to somebody like that in a movement like that. How, how did that happen? Well, it wasn't because most of those men were, were Nazis at heart and, uh, and liked Hitler and liked his programs and his policies. Not by a long shot. Almost all of them hated Nazism and Hitler. But they took those oaths of loyalty anyway. Why? In fact, not just some, most, the overwhelming majority of church leaders in Germany did this. Why? Because they made this mistake. They made the mistake of believing that what what was in my best interests is somehow what God wants. What's in my best interest, which what would promote uh, the least amount of pain and the most amount of what seems like earthly success is, is what God has in mind for me. Life was undoubtedly easier for the men who took oaths like this than the ones who didn't, for sure. Ask Dietrich Bonhoeffer when you visit his grave in the concentration camp where he was executed. But that's what happened. And you know, in a, in a way, you and I can make this same mistake. Now, I don't think you and I will ever find ourselves making face with a decision where we choose to live or to make an oath to some monster, godless tyrant. I don't think that's going to be our decision. But every single day, you and I face decisions where we have to choose between really searching for and keeping what God desires at the forefront of my mind or just deciding what I want, what feels best, what is easiest, what will cause the least amount of pain. It's a constant struggle, isn't it? Every single Christian struggles with the notion of how do I keep God's interests at the forefront of my heart and mind 
and not just live my life making my own decisions, doing what I want, and then convincing myself that's what God wants. All of us struggle with this, right? In fact, I would suggest the only ones of us who don't struggle with this are the ones who have just quit trying to struggle and just decided, I'm not, I'm not going to try to keep what God wants for me at the forefront of my consciousness and my will. This is a really old problem, but it's a lot older than World War II. <laughs> this problem was invented a long time before that. Today, I just want to really zero in on three verses in the Gospel of Matthew. You ever hear the story of, of Jesus calling his buddy Peter Satan? Get behind me, Satan. This is that story today. We're going to back up. If you're, if you're going to find your Bible and read with me as I read in a minute, we're going to start in verse 15 to set the context. But really, this is the, this is the problem, the mistake that Peter makes. The same one those Christian leaders made under the Nazis in Germany. Peter, he, we're going to see today, he falls a long ways in a hurry because he gets his mind stuck on just regular human stuff, like what would be easiest, what would feel best, what would bring the most success in my opinion, instead of asking, what does God want? And living his life that way. Let's read the passage. All uh, We're going to start in verse 15, like I said. And I'll stop a couple of times here to set the context. In verse 15, um, Jesus is saying to his disciples, he asks them this question, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, in verse 16, answering on behalf of the disciples, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In verse 17, Jesus obviously agrees with that assessment of who he is. Verse 17, he says, Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's the right answer. Verse 18, I also say to you, you are Peter, which is a word that means rock. You are rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overpower. I'm going to build the church before I start my kingdom, and the most powerful forces in hell and death will not stop. What I'm going to do, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19 says, Jesus to Peter, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then Jesus warned the disciples that they should tell no one he was the Christ. We studied through that last week. And now, right when Jesus gets to the point where he's heard his disciples identify him as the the Christ, this coming king that will rule over all of the earth one day, and the son of the living God, uh, a divine man, a God-man, Jesus changes directions in how he teaches the disciples. He's been teaching the disciples to help them recognize who he is. Now they know. He's been teaching the disciples, if you stay close to me, you can do things you can't normally do. You can feed hungry people. And now, 
Now that they know who he is, and he's, they've heard him promise what he's going to do through them, build his church. Now he changes directions, and he starts telling the disciples, now that you know who I am, let me tell you what it means that I'm going to be a Christ, that I'm the Christ, and what has to happen to me so that I can do through you guys what I've promised to do, which is build the church. Matthew 16, 21 through 23, read this way. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Okay, there's the passage. Let's dive into those three verses this morning. Jesus has heard the disciples recognize his identity. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're this king who's going to rule forever. And now Jesus starts to teach his disciples what must happen because he is who they have identified him to be. The first word I want you to zero in on our passage is this one right here, must. It's a little three-letter Greek word, looks like D-E-I, day. It means it is necessary. That's what Jesus says. From that time on, now that you know who I am, I want you to know it is necessary, it has to happen, that I go to Jerusalem, my enemies kill me, and I rise again. That's lesson number one, as soon as they know he is who he is. The reason I zero in on that word, I want you to know that what happened to Jesus at the end of his life when he was arrested, when he was tortured, when he was brutally executed, was no accident. It was, he's going to predict this three times through the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first one. And he said it's what must happen. It was necessary. It's not an accident. It's not a shame. It's not a, an example of Jesus, this, this kind of mild and meek, innocent, naive man being overwhelmed by more powerful forces. He did this intentionally. It was the main purpose of his coming. Do you believe that? He came to go to the cross for your sins. Do you believe that? Well, then you're way ahead of where the disciples were at this point because they didn't have any idea that's why he came. That's why Jesus has to start teaching them this is going to happen. Because when they come to realize Jesus is the Christ, they have a different idea in their heads. The Old Testament, what they call just the scriptures, for us it's the Old Testament. The Old Testament said the Christ would be a conquering king who would defeat all the nations of the earth and rule from the throne of David. That's the picture they had in their mind and Jesus knows this. Now they missed some other things the Old Testament said about Messiah. For example... The Messiah would be, according to Isaiah, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our sins, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's the truth about Messiah also. That had to happen first. It was necessary. Because the cross is the only way that God could be both just. You know what justice is? Justice is when the guilty get punished. Justice is when sin gets punished. The cross allowed God to punish sin while also being merciful and forgiving to people like us. Every sin that was ever sinned will either be punished by the person who sinned it or by Jesus on the cross. It must happen. But Jesus knows the disciples. This isn't on their radar. Even though he predicts three times, I'm going to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise again. It's like once he says they're going to kill me, they don't hear anything else. They, they can't, or they don't understand what a, the, a resurrected Jesus would mean. It's like they stop listening after they're going to, after the, they're going to kill me part. And that is why... Peter rebukes Jesus for what he begins to teach them. Peter didn't like the sound of Jesus' plan even one little bit. He's positively ID'd Jesus as the Christ, the King, uh, who is divine, the Son of the living God. But as soon as he starts saying, me, the Christ, I'm going to be killed by my enemies, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, they make up the Sanhedrin. That's the the religious leaders of Israel. It's like Peter, something short circuits in his brain. He starts getting a syntax error message flashing. Peter has to be thinking something like, you're the Christ, you're the king, you just told me that you are. But dead guys don't make very good kings, which is a pretty good point if you think about it, right? How can you be killed and still be the Christ? And so here's what Peter does. We know that he he took Jesus aside. I picture Jesus sort of, or Peter sort of grabbing Jesus by the elbow and just kind of leading him over. Come on, let me straighten you out a little bit, Lord. You know, you just gave me the keys of the kingdom. I'm sort of a big deal. So my first act as the newly appointed leader of the disciples is going to be to straighten out the Christ and the son of the living God. And he rebukes, he rebukes Jesus. That's just, I can't hardly say that without smiling. Do you catch the irony there? This is a fisherman rebuking the son of the living God, his creator, the most powerful king that will ever live. And this fisherman is chewing him out and telling him he's wrong. Here's what he says. Peter takes Jesus aside, began to rebuke him. Here's what he said. He starts with a, this is a figure of speech in the Greek that means something like, God forbid, Lord. Or this won't happen, Lord. And then he says again, this must not 
happen to you. Remember what Jesus said about him going to the cross? He began to explain to them what must happen, what was necessary to happen. Peter pulls him aside and says, what you said must happen, must not. This will never happen to you. And it's really strong language. The the, the God forbid Lord is an emphatic uh, exclamation of a statement. And then where he says this must not happen to you, in the Greek, it's the strongest negation that Peter could have used in a sentence with that construction. I'll bore you, I'll I'll spare you the boring details, but it's like he said as strongly as he could, this must not, no way, no chance, ever, ever, ever happen to you. Just get this whole suffering Messiah thing out of your brain. Jesus. And then we read what to me are some of the scariest words in the whole New Testament if if they were pointed at if they were about you. And I'm not talking about the Jesus calling Peter Satan part. Again, in my mind's eye, here's how I see that Peter is, he's dragging the Lord Jesus Christ away by the elbow. He's rebuking away. He's trying to set him straight. And you get that out of your mind. And you never let any thoughts like that come out of your mouth again, mister. And then we read this. But he turned. And that's terrifying. When you were young, you ever do something that made your dad stop what he was doing and look over at you with a look that let you know, oh, I think I have done something wrong. I think I've gotten myself in big trouble. All right, imagine if the God of the universe does that to you. That's what just happened. Peter's chewing Jesus out and Jesus turned. And I, we can only imagine the look that was in Jesus' eyes But I do assume Peter went, I think I've overplayed my hand just a bit here. But Jesus turned. And Peter knows he has miscalculated. And Jesus has a rebuke for Peter. It starts with these very famous words. Get behind me, Satan. Four words in English, four words in Greek. You're getting a Greek lesson today, okay? So prepare yourself. Get behind me, Satan. In the Greek, looks like this. That says, Hupaga, apiso mu, satana. Which means this is like, go behind me, Satan. Those four words, the reason I show them to you in Greek is because I want you to know those four words have been important, very important, to the book of Matthew already. We've heard those four words before. This one, right, first I'm going to tell you about the outside ones. This one, hupaga, which means go, and this one, satana. Where in the book of Matthew before this have you heard somebody say, Go, Satan! Go away, Satan! If we were to turn to Matthew chapter 4, it's been a long time since we studied it. Do you know the story of Jesus being tempted by Satan? We're not going to teach through it, but here's what happened. Uh, Jesus had not started his public ministry 
Um, He had just been baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit led Jesus out in the wilderness. He didn't eat or drink for 40 days. And the Lord allowed Satan to come and tempt Jesus. Satan gives Jesus the full court press out in the wilderness. And at the end of that time, when Jesus knew enough had been enough, I have passed this test, he aims these two words at Satan. Hupaga satana. Satana. Go, Satan. Our Bibles usually translate it. Go away, Satan. The reason I want you to know that is the same words that he used to send away the devil, that's what he points at his friend Peter. Whatever Peter has done, he has made his friend Jesus look at him and say the same thing as he said to Satan when he told Satan to get lost. Ouch, right? So what's the mistake that Peter has, has made? What, what is it that made Jesus call Peter Satan? Well, Jesus gives us an explanation. And here it is. We're right down here. So Jesus turned to Peter, but he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Why did he say that? Because Jesus says, you are a stumbling block to me. Let me tell you what a stumbling block is for just a minute. Greek word is scandalon. It can be used of just something that's left out carelessly and somebody trips over. But a scandalon is the trigger part of a trap. It's, it's what you put the cheese or the peanut butter on, on the mouse trap. Okay? In Jesus' day, if there was some kind of snare or trap with a net and there'd be bait placed someplace by some trigger mechanism, so when the critter knocked over that thing, the trap would be sprung. Right? That's a scandal on. Jesus says, Peter, you're a trap. You're the trigger of a trap to me. Has Peter fallen far and fallen fast? Yes. Just three verses before this, up in verse 18, look what Jesus called a guy named Simon. I'm going to now name you Peter. He says, and he says, and on this, you are the rock. And on the rock, I'm going to build my church in the gates of hell. Just three verses before this, Jesus said, you know who I am. You're the first stone in the foundation of this church I'm going to build through you guys. Three verses later, he goes from being a foundational stone to a stumbling block. That's fallen far in a hurry. Why did Jesus call Peter a stumbling block? He tells us, because you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You know what Peter's, where Peter's problem was? In his thoughts. Peter had a thought problem. Peter had what one of my seminary professors used to call stinking thinking. That's a long drop too. Or that's, and that's, a, that's a 180 degree turn from the passage we studied last year, or last year, last week also. Check this one out. 
in verse 17, four verses before this. After Jesus say, or Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, look at the commendation he gets from Jesus. You are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven gave you this idea. Four verses ago, where was Peter's thoughts? Right in line with the God of the universe. And you're blessed because you're thinking the thoughts of God. Within four verses, he calls him Satan, which seems rough. And the reason is, you're a trap to me, and you've got your mind uh, on man's interests and not God. Your, your thoughts have changed. And you know why Jesus calls Peter Satan? Because he sounds like Satan. Peter does not, Jesus does not call Peter Satan because Peter is possessed with the devil. That, like, wouldn't be a problem for Jesus, right? What's a problem is when there's someone that Jesus, that Jesus wants to use to fulfill his promise to build his church who has his or her mind stuck on human things. Because when we get stuck there, we become a stumbling block to what Jesus wants to do through us. Here's how... Jesus calls Peter Satan because he sounds like Satan. If you know the story of the temptation, this was Satan's whole temptation. Trying to get Jesus to think like a mere human. To think like, if we're honest, you and I tend to think if we're not really, really careful. Quickly, here's the story of the temptation. Jesus out in the wilderness, hasn't eaten for 40 days, 40 nights. He's really hungry. Satan shows up. What does he say? What's the first temptation? Turn these stones into bread. Here's the temptation. He's saying, Jesus, if you really are the son of God like you say you are, then this whole walking around hungry and suffering thing is beneath you. Turn these stones into bread and make yourself a sandwich and get on with it. This is ridiculous for the son of God to be suffering. Stop it. He says, take yourself up to the, the pinnacle of the, uh, or he takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple, high point, says, throw yourself off of this, Jesus. You force God to send angels. He won't let you hit the ground. Force God to take care of you the way you deserve to be taken care of. All this suffering is ridiculous and beneath you. And by the way, Satan says, third temptation, I know if you're the Christ, you're going to get the, all the kingdoms of the earth, Right? But you shouldn't have to suffer to have that. You just bow to me. I'll give you the good stuff God wants to give you anyway without any suffering, without any pain, without any cross. Satan's whole temptation is get suffering out of your mind. God would never want you to suffer. Now, does that sound like Peter in this passage? It does. Jesus calls Peter Satan because he's heard this from Satan. Peter's supposed to be Jesus' spokesman. And he's turned into Satan's spokesman. Part of the trap. Part of the temptation. We do this still all the time. We make this mistake every 
single day that we're not very, very careful. I think it's important to hear that warning, church. Every time we get our thoughts and our energy and our purposes and our desires stuck on regular human things, it doesn't have to be sinful things, just what everyone else thinks about. We can start to sound like Peter. We can be a stumbling block to what God wants to do through us. Every time I read this passage and I hear Jesus call his friend Peter Satan because he's got bad thinking, because he's got stinking thinking, just because he's thinking about human stuff, I always wonder how many times has Jesus looked down at me and said, wanted to say, get behind me, Satan. Come on, Maxwell. Your thoughts are exactly where the devil wants your thoughts. You know, you know what the devil wants from you and me? I don't think he really wants to turn us into like Satan worshipers that sacrifice and animals and goats and stuff like that. I don't really think he's interested in that. You know what he wants? He wants me to think about me. He wants me to think about living in a way that has no discomfort, no sacrifice, no higher purpose or calling, just my kingdom how much I can make, what my portfolio will look like, what I can build, what I can do, how I can make myself look great, how I can avoid any discomfort. Whereas Jesus, his thoughts are always on sacrifice, others, service, the will of the Father, obedience. Jesus promised to build his church and he will. Somewhere. But there's no promise it's going to be here. You know then? This this has been happening for 2,000 years. People get stuck. His servants, people who love Jesus and want to follow him and are going to heaven someday, get stuck with their thoughts on regular human stuff. And before long, Jesus is building his church somewhere else. Now, I skipped a couple words. Did you notice? There's four words here that I told you were important in the Gospel of Matthew. We covered the outside ones. Go, Satan. That's the problem. The problem is we get our minds stuck thinking human thoughts, right? The solution is tucked in the inside. These two words right here, apiso mu, get translated in this passage, behind me. But Peter has heard them before. Also in Matthew chapter 4, just after the temptation... Jesus sends Satan away with those two outside words, hupaga, satana. And then he starts his public ministry. The first thing he does in his public ministry in the book of Matthew is he goes, find, he goes and finds two brothers fishing. One was named Simon, one was named Andrew. Simon is Peter. And he invited them. Anybody remember what 
how Jesus invited Peter? What did he say when they were up on the boat? What two words? Follow me. Anybody want to take a wild guess how you say follow me in Greek? There's a dute before that, which like come behind me. Here it is. Follow me. See, Satan doesn't get these words. Satan just gets go Satan. Peter and you and me, we get this. The solution is the same thing as our original call. The solution is the same thing as our original call. Here's what he says to Peter. Jesus says, get back behind me, Peter. You sound like Satan right now. Get back behind me. You're charging ahead of me, telling me, the God of the universe and Christ the King, what I should be doing. Get back behind me follow me your problem is you're out of line get your thoughts back behind me get your obedience back behind me that's the problem and the solution our problem is we get our minds stuck on our business on our things, on human stuff. And without even knowing it, when we live like that, the enemy's got us right where he wants us. Again, he doesn't want to make us goat sacrificers as much as he wants to make us non-sacrificers, just people who live for for ourselves. And the solution, as always, is to get back behind him follow Jesus and for Christians that invitation never gets taken away and it's a daily struggle am I out of line what's the solution get back behind him you know this is why we come to church we read our Bibles we uh, try to meet with somebody else uh, during the week who also is trying to do this Christianity thing right this is why we do this not because If I don't say my prayers and read my Bible and go to church, God doesn't like me, and he's very angry with me, and I probably won't go to heaven if I don't have enough check marks in the attendance box on those three things. No! Where did Peter's problem start that made him sound like Satan? Where? His thoughts. His thoughts. Folks, it's hard to keep our thoughts on God's thoughts, right? That's why we need a steady diet of God's thoughts. It's hard enough when we're doing this well. It's darn near impossible when we're doing this on our own. That's why we stay in the word. That's why we find some other people who want to do this well too, to hold ourselves accountable, to take control of our thoughts, to make sure our thoughts are thinking God's thoughts. And this is the only way we know what those are is in his word. And then our obedience comes out of having the right thoughts. We take control of our thoughts, make sure we're thinking biblical thoughts. They become biblical attitudes, and my behavior comes out of those things. The way most people live is just I do whatever I want, and then I think later about why that's really what God wanted me to do, and He's really okay with that. And you can't tell me there's anything sinful in that. But the problem is, 
We get our minds stuck in human thoughts. That's what makes us sound like the devil. So let me ask you as we land the plane here this morning. Where you're at and how you're doing following him. Are you, do you feel like you're behind him? Are you, we're, we're trying to be Jesus followers here. Have you ever gotten behind him? Do you even know that's a thing? Being behind Jesus first involves believing that when he died on the cross, he was under the, the death sentence you deserved. To believe he did that for you. But that's not the finish line. That's not the goal of my earthly existence. If you think your only goal in this life is to go to heaven when you die, you're going to waste your life. You're going to be happy that you were saved, I guess. Yes. But your goal is to glorify God. That's why you were created. Following Jesus. Obedience to Jesus. Being used by Jesus. That's what we're here for. And where we make mistakes in our obedience starts in our thoughts, does it not? And then it works its way out in our behavior. Where are you at today? Are you following him? Did you follow him this week, this month? Well, the, the good news is, is that the solution is the same as your original call. Just get behind me. Get back behind me. Come with me. I'll lead. You follow. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you, for, thank you for this little passage of Scripture that shows our problem, our same old problem so well. We get our minds stuck thinking the things of man. And when our minds get stuck there, we become disobedient children. God, thank you for, the, for reissuing the invitation to follow you. God, we want to be Jesus followers. We want to be people you use to build and strengthen your church. We want to be encouragers. We want to be givers. We want to be uh, just used by you to do things only you can do. But we know we've got to keep our minds on the things of God to do that. God, help us keep our minds there. Give us a desire for a steady diet of your word because that's where your thoughts are written for us. God, not just so that we can be proud that we read our Bible more than somebody else, but just so you can soak our minds in the thoughts of God. That we might follow you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for dying and saving us.